I'm Julia Murphy. And I'm Emma Sagner. You're listening to Babes Talk Money. Babes Talk Money is a podcast that Julia and I are making that's based off of an EXCO that we used to teach together. EXCO stands for Experimental College, which is a program at Oberlin College where Julia and I are both senior economics majors in which anyone can teach a course on pretty much anything they want. This is neoclassical economics, and that school posits itself as being objective but in reality tends to be a little bit right-leaning. So if you ever take an economics course at almost any college or university in the U.S., and also probably in high school, they won't tell you this, but you're learning neoclassical economics. It's possible that you haven't even heard of neoclassical economics, even though it's likely what you've learned in any economics course you or anyone you know has taken. This is because it's so dominant in the field of economics, especially in the United States, that it isn't even discussed as a school And students are often not even taught that there are other options that they could possibly learn about. Some of the other schools that we look at are even further right than neoclassical, like Austrian. But most of the schools we look at tend to be more left and tend to have different focuses that are specific to different societal issues. And because economics is all about talking about the allocation of resources and it is a social science and therefore is about people, it's really important that economics has a more inclusive lens, especially because neoclassical economics is really based on this idea of homo economicus, which Emma can talk a little more about. Yeah, Julia, so homo economicus is this character that we see in economics all the time, especially in Econ 101, it's brought up a lot. And he's sort of this like every man that represents the average consumer, the average actor in the economy. And homo economicus is more often than not a man more often than not, interested in profits and nothing else, and often doesn't have any motivations that normal humans have, like families and passions and other cares other than profit. So we really take issue with this character and push back against that. In all fairness, many neoclassical economists, or actually almost all of them, have recognized the vast and very deep flaws of homo economicus, but they continue to use it as the basis for models. And these models are used to model all types of things. And the reason why it's so important, these models end up translating into policy. Exactly. So the problem is that neoclassical is one of the more developed schools that we have, which is why so many people rely on it so much. It's one of the more quantitative skills that we have, and it has a lot of models in it that have been developed that are really important to creating policy. But like Julia said, the issue is that when you create policy based off gross generalizations of numbers, based on gross generalizations of people, you end up with policies that are gross generalizations and don't necessarily fit what everybody needs. So neoclassical economics isn't all bad, and I think that's important to note. There's a lot of value that's come out of it, and people have used it to prove and show policies that have been really important and really effective. So if you think about macroeconomics, which allows us to study the economy, that is within neoclassical, and it's able to tell us what's going to happen with interest rates. And I won't go into interest rates because it's probably not that interesting to those of you who aren't so into economics. But things like interest rates are incredibly important to how the economy functions and make sure that unemployment stays low and inflation stays low. And that's super important for low income people in particular and just the economy's functionality and being more equitable, even though 
at the same time, the way interest rates work can also lead to more inequality. Um, so again, that's like sidetracking a little bit. We won't go down that path. But there is some good in neoclassical, and it's just important to keep that in mind throughout this whole podcast. Definitely, definitely. We are appreciative for neoclassical and what it's done for our field. Yeah. Um, so also, just so everyone's aware out there, Emma and I are both economics majors at Oberlin. Um, we are both seniors, and so we have had a fair amount of experience with all this stuff, and we've been involved with lots of different groups and things going on at Oberlin. Um, so we don't know everything, but we're very excited and open to the idea of people calling in to ask us some questions that we can answer in later shows. Yeah, something else that's really important to us uh, and I think makes our experience a little bit different is that it's not always super easy to be a woman in economics. Uh, we've struggled with that a lot throughout our time and being seniors, I think we've got a pretty good grip on what we're doing, but we've all been in some crazy study groups and some crazy conversations about you know, what's expected in our field, and it's really not always the easiest. Okay, Julia, so if everyone loves neoclassical so much, how did it all get started? How did we get here? So, before the Great Depression, in the early 1900s, Economics was much, much less advanced than it is right now. People really believed in Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand, which is basically this idea that we shouldn't interfere with the market because it'll work itself out. And that, that ide ideology is still pretty prevalent today, but I'll get back to that. So basically, then around the time of the recession, Keynes came about and he came up with this whole field of economics that we'll talk about at a later date. But basically, he introduced this idea that governments can actually have some say in the economy and they can influence it and change it and help it in times of recession. So you saw that with all the public works projects that came out of the 1920s and 30s um, in the depression. Yeah, this is important to think about when you think about the 2008 recession and you think about how important the government was in bailing out the big banks, bailing out the car companies. We're talking about the time when the government had no hand in what was going on in the economy at all. It was actually unheard of for them to intervene during a panic. Yeah, and so that's exactly what we saw happening. Finally, the government implemented all these social welfare programs and started to have a much bigger role in the government, in, in the economy. Um, so then what happened was we had the Cold War, and coming out of that, there was this idea of the greatness of capitalism, and all of a sudden you had the rise of neoliberalism. So neoliberalism is a big term. It's definitely going to come up a lot on this show. For the time being, we're going to give you a working definition. This will just help understand what we're talking about, but trust us when we say it does not cover what neoliberalism actually means. It has a lot of meanings, political, economic, and otherwise. So for this case, we're going to say neoliberalism can be defined as a set of free market economic policies implemented with the belief that the market can best regulate itself, which has serious, extensive implications for society and culture. Yeah, and so basically you had this rise of neoliberalism and you saw in the 90s this like very intense deregulation of the economy. Um, and that's a lot of what read, led to the Great Recession, which again is stuff that will come out come up throughout this show. Um, but basically, what's important to note here is that 
this whole, these waves of economics or like economic trends are very related to the schools of thought. And so neoclassical economics runs parallel with neoliberalism and neoliberalism is something happening in society. It's real, it's there. Neoclassical is much more theoretical because it's an academic term. It's an academic thing. It's how we study the economy and the economy we have is a neoliberal one. Right, so this idea of deregulation it goes hand in hand with this idea of that the person can make the best decision for themselves and that they, it isn't so complicated. It's a, it's a very, it's an idea of sort of simplifying things into making the best decision, taking the path of least resistance. Exactly. Um, and so that also connects really well with this idea of rationality. Um, so when Emma was talking about homo economicus before, a big part of who homo economicus is, is that this man or this person is completely rational. Right, and what really is rational? Oh boy. Um, so we don't really know. I mean, we do know, of course, but there are so many different interpretations of what rationality really is. But in like the sense of homo economicus, rational is sort of this profit-seeking, do what's best for me and only me, without really acknowledging that doing what's best for someone else that might not be the best for you in that moment, might in the long term be best for you. I think it definitely has a lot to do with sort of the immediacy of what happens. Right, so to sort of boil down this idea to give like a small example, suppose that strawberries were $3 from Jim, but your neighbor and your best friend Bob sell strawberries for $5 a bundle. Obviously, Homo economicus would go for the $3 bundle. That's cheaper, he has extra money to spend on whatever he wants for his family. But if you're me and you're best friends with Bob, you want to buy from your best friend Bob. Homo economicus could never understand something like that because it doesn't understand that kind of complicated rationality. Exactly. So another important concept in neoclassical economics is that all behavior is preference-driven. So if all behavior is preference-driven, what does that mean for Bob? Well, for Bob, it means uh, in this world, if we're really talking about preference, it means that Bob would be very lucky and that I would buy from Bob. But unfortunately, that's not really the world we're living in. While neoclassical might say that it values preference-driven, it doesn't really, because in their eyes, preference doesn't mean it's something non-rational or something non-profit-seeking. Exactly. So when you actually do these models to evaluate the types of choices people made, they base them on the types of choices they think people will make, which are the quote-unquote rational ones. Which means, in the books, it's not going to look like Bob's doing very well at all. In fact, the books would tell you that Bob needs to shut down his business. Exactly. So we've been talking about neoclassical like it's this huge hegemonic force in economics, and it definitely is. But we're sitting here talking to you about alternative schools of thought, so there must be somebody out there doing some other research. And yes, in fact there is. So if you were to take an economics course at Oberlin or almost any other college or university in the United States, you would learn about homo economicus, maybe not explicitly, but definitely implicitly. However, if you were to go to, say, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which has a heterodox economics department. Quick functional definition, heterodox just means different than the rest. 
Exactly. And took a class with, say, Nina Banks, who's a very cool feminist economist there. She might talk about Homo economicus, but if she did, it would be very critically. Because she basically views economics through this lens of feminism. So people like Nina Banks are out there. They're doing alternative scholarship. They're doing alternative study. There are other people out there like Daniel Kahneman who's doing behavioralist economics and there are plenty of others that other schools that have been founded by other people that we go over in our exco and when you put all of these schools together and you think about how they work together and how they can have conflicting ideas but work in the same direction that's called pluralism yes and so ideally for us at least an economics department would be pluralistic meaning you would have teachers from different schools and because neoclassical is so mainstream it is so dominant all of these professors would also know neoclassical and basically in them knowing neoclassical that means that the department could translate really well to those who are interested in economics more for capitalist reasons um, but basically at schools like UMass Amherst and actually at a lot of schools internationally people learn a bunch of different ways of thinking about the economy, about allocation of resources, however you think of economics can be approached in so many different ways. So you could learn it from a Marxian perspective, you could learn it from a feminist perspective, ecological, behavioralist, and actually one point about behavioralist is that it is actually becoming more mainstream and some people might look at this as a negative in the sense that you're just potentially replacing neoclassical with behavioralist. But I think it could be a really positive thing and open up people to the idea that there are other ways of doing economics because it has been so rigid for so long. Yeah, and to backpedal a little bit, this idea of all of these schools coming together, I like to think of it sort of in the same way that people like to have diverse opinions around them in a political office to avoid things like groupthink. The idea isn't to find which school is right and have them fight it out, it's to have them work together to create a bunch of different ideas that work in different ways. Okay, so what does a neoclassical economist actually do day to day? So a neoclassical economist, or an economist, will do a lot of different things. It depends what their area of focus is. But basically, a lot of what economics is, is doing statistics, running what are called regressions, to figure out if some variable or something has an impact on something else. Um, so basically, you add up a bunch of things and you figure out what percentage is due to all these different variables. Um, right, so if you're trying to figure out like what causes crops to grow, you might use a regression to figure out how much of it is based on rainfall and how much of it is based on sunshine and how much of it is it based on how much the cows are pooping that day. Exactly. Um, and so this doesn't seem all that messed up. Seems like that's a lot of useful information. And that is what we were saying before and part of what we meant before when we said that neoclassical isn't all bad. But at the same time, it tries so hard to be objective that sometimes it says some kind of crazy stuff. So for example, they do what's called a dummy variable, and a dummy variable is either zero or one, either exists or it doesn't. So if we go back to the rainfall example, that would be something like either the farm is in the Midwest or it's not in the Midwest. And if it's in the Midwest, 
that variable is given a value of one, and if it isn't in the Midwest, it's given a valuable value value of zero. Yep. And so if you think about this in terms of society, you end up putting very important aspects of who people are, of people's identities, into variables. And so they'll do things like they'll have a dummy variable for male or not male. And even though by saying male or not male, that sentence itself implies that you could have all types of genders, in it being zero or one, you're like very strongly implying that there is a binary of gender. So that's one example of how it goes awry. They also do things sometimes where they'll have a variable to talk about a race, which means that you're making these crazy generalizations about race. Um, so for example, I took a class here at Oberlin, we learned about this model called hedonics, where basically um, real estate agents will determine the value of a house based on a bunch of variables. And they had this crazy variable that was saying, is the neighborhood Latinx or not? And of course they didn't use the term Latinx, they used the term Latino, but that's another story. The point is the variable showed that if there were Latino people living in that neighborhood, the values were lower. And the thing about economists is they'll say, well, that's just objectively true. And maybe it is, but you can't just say that without any disclaimer, without any discussion. It's like pretty messed up. And it also ignores all the social factors and cultural factors that have led to this case where neighborhoods that tend to be primarily Latinx are more low income. Right. And we're not talking about just creating a binary for gender or for race. We're talking about all sorts of things. This is just one example of a way that we do an equation with these dummy variables. But another example of a dummy variable that could exist is poor or not poor, educated or not educated. Sometimes when you're working with such a large group of people, you have to use these macro ideas. But like we said before, the more generalizations you make, the more general the policies that are created come out of it, and the less they help the individual specific people in the country. Exactly. And so a bunch of these schools that we'll be talking about in the next few weeks throughout the semester are different ways of looking at these problems so that they don't ignore these sort of questions and societal issues. And so if you think about feminist economics, for example, it might not be so calculated, it might not be so mathy, there might not be models, there might not be numbers which are thought of as objective, but sometimes it's important to be subjective and they allow for a lot more room for discussion, for thinking about the economy in a way that's sensitive, but also that's just more thorough and complete. Even though, again, we want to emphasize that we are calling for pluralism, so we don't want it to just be feminist economics, but sometimes there are cases where feminist does the best job of explaining, or maybe it's ecological, or maybe it's a different field, but you get the idea. Exactly. episode we just want to tell you guys a little bit about how we got here yeah so emma and i actually met through an econ class macroeconomics to be specific it was a very difficult and trying class and we definitely bonded over how we sided on different arguments that our study group would get into about the economy 
Um, and then we both ended up taking this exco, me in the first semester of its existence, Emma in the second semester. Um, and then from there, we both became involved with different groups. On campus, one, one thing that we got involved in was a group called Rethinking Economics, where we really bonded over our passion of changing this, changing this discipline, making it more accessible to people who aren't white men, uh, making it more accessible to people who don't want to be econ majors, but they want to understand what's going on in the economy and what's going on in the world. And we became passionate about spreading this information and helping people understand why we're economics majors and why we want to learn this stuff. Exactly. And then one final thing is that we also know of people in the econ department who are there because they want to go to Wall Street, they want to make money, and you know, to each their own. Um, but we wanted to make the department more accessible to people who just want to learn. Anyway, so that's how we got here. We hope you all enjoyed. We're very excited to keep talking with you all. Thanks so much for listening to the first episode of Babes Talk Money. Money.